Good morning, everyone. Boker Tov. Welcome back to Parsha Perspectives for today. It's really uh, amazing to see the room, Baruch Hashem, the shul filling up. Great to have so many of you back live in person. Uh, if you are here live in person, you have the advantage of enjoying a hot beverage and the beautiful weather and the beautiful shul. So welcome back. Parsha series is generously sponsored by Becky and Avi Katz and family in memory of Becky's father, David Grossman. Our learning is Le'ilu Nishmas David Menachem Manish. This morning's shir is also sponsored anonymously in honor of the Yerzad of Yitzchak Ben Chaim Tzvi and Mindel Bas Yitzchak Der Neshama Shirav and Aliyah. Thank you to our generous sponsors. We're always very grateful. If you'd like to sponsor the Parsha Shir, you can go on brsonline.org slash sponsor. You could also sponsor the Parsha Perspective Write-Up, which is shared around the world and printed and read at Shabbos tables around the world. We're grateful for everyone for their support and helping to share the Torah that we learn together. Also, lastly, if you've not yet signed up for the, B, the uh, WhatsApp group for the Parsha Perspectives. You can get bonus material. You can find out the schedule if we're on or we're off. Don't be confused and come if we're not meeting, which rarely happens, Baruch Hashem. Bonus material, the Parsha Perspectives write-up, and so much more. All you have to do is join the group at rabbiefrangoldberg.org slash WhatsApp. rabbiefrangoldberg.org slash WhatsApp, and you can join the group. Okay, Parsha's told us, page 124, the Yard Scroll Stone Chumash, the Vav HaChibor, we are connecting, we are continuing to where we last left off last week. Ve'ela told us Yitzchak ben Avram, Avram holid es Yitzchak. These are the offspring, these are the progeny, these are the children of Yitzchak, the son of Avram. And in case that wasn't clear, in case you couldn't follow that Yitzchak was the son of Avram, Pasa goes on to say that Avram holid es Yitzchak, that Avram gave birth to Yitzchak. We spent much time on this in the past which we're not going to do now, but of course it is a peculiar Pasuk. These are the toldos, these are the, this is the legacy, these are the offspring, the progeny, this is the impact, the influence of Yitzchak, the son of Avram, and Avram begat. It's the only time anyone ever uses the word begat. I don't think anyone uses it out of this context, out of Parsha's toldos, and Avram begat Yitzchak. Avram begat Yitzchak. Why does the Torah need to emphasize this? So Rashi here makes a famous comment but I want to tell you an incredible interpretation that I think is really a game changer. Rashi says the following, Why does the Torah need to emphasize? Yitzchak the son of Avram, Avram the father of Yitzchak. Yeah, we got it. We're good. Keep going. Tell us something new. Tell us something we don't know. Says Rashi, you know why? There were Leitzanei Hador. What are Leitzanei Hador? Every door, every generation suffers from their Leitzanim. The cynics and the scoffers, those who are uh, absolutely cynical about everything, critical about everything, they ridicule and scorn, scorn everything. So what did they say? What was their, what was their um, controversy or what was their uh, scandal they were manufacturing? You know who the real father of Yitzchak is? It's not Avram. Rather, it is Avimelech. They were married many years, countless years, countless anniversaries, and Gurnish, nothing happened. Sarah never conceived. She never became pregnant. So what did Hashem do in order to respond to the cynics and the scoffers who were scorning and ridiculing, who were manufacturing controversy and scandals and, and what theories? What's the word I'm looking for? Conspiracy. Thank you, Mrs. Kamenetsky. Conspiracy th- theories. They were manufacturing conspiracy theories all to undermine, 
all to compromise, all to challenge the integrity and the authority of an Avram. So what did Hashem do to respond? He made Yitzchak look like the spitting image of Avram. They looked exactly the same. So everyone looked and said, ah, no confusion here. Don't listen to them. It's a ridiculous accusation. Impossible. No way Avram is the father. And that's why we have to do a language to emphasize that Yitzhak was the spitting image of Avram. By the way, we've spoken about it in the past, but Hashem makes a miracle. Hashem intervenes. Ignore. Why not ignore the cynics and scoffers? Every generation has them. That was even before the internet and social media and online trolls. Can you imagine what Avram would have had to endure today online? So why not ignore them? Isn't that the advice that we always get? Just ignore them. We'll rise above them. Why does Hashem not only not ignore them, He does a miracle to respond to them. You see how pernicious and negative, you see how destructive the cynics and the scoffers are. You see how they can compromise and corrupt. You see how they can destroy and undermine and sabotage so much good that even Hashem feels he needs to make a miracle and intervene. Why would they have reached this conclusion? Why would they have ever maintained that Avimelech was the true father of Sarah's baby? So the answer is how closely, chronologically, the events unfolded. When did Sarah conceive? Long awaited. When did she finally conceive? Right after the story of Avimelech. Right after the story of Avimelech, thinking Sarah was single, Hashem punishes him. Ultimately, Avram davens for him, allows him to recover. And when Sarah was released to Avram, right away the Torah says, Vashem pakara Sarah kasher amar. All of a sudden, Sarah's pregnant. So there's this exchange, this interaction, this seclusion with Avimelech. Avram says, what's going on over here? Avimelech is, is, is struck with a illness. And Avram davens intervenes. Avimelech heals. And all of a sudden, Sarah's pregnant. Samach Parshah says Rashi, we have the adjacent, the juxtaposition of these two parshas to teach We learn from here a rule many are familiar with, not necessarily knowing its source. It's from here. That if you daven for someone else, what do those words mean? You're davening for someone and you need the exact same thing. So you're davening for someone's parnasa because you need parnasa. You're davening for someone's fertility, conception, because you want a baby. You're davening for someone's shidduch, and you're looking for a shidduch. You need the very same thing. Who's answered first? You. Avimelech is ill. Avram davens. And who's answered first? Sarah conceives. So you see that Avram is answered first. And then the tefillah for Avimelech is received, is answered, because Avimelech hears. So the parshios are placed, they're juxtaposed one next to the other to teach that anyone who davens for a friend, lo so davar, for the same thing, that person is answered first. Avram davar for Avimelech, Shem answered Avram first, prior to healing Avimelech. Tzarech lo so davar. What do the words tzarech lo so davar mean? So normally it's translated to, under, to be understood as, tzarech lo so davar means you have the same need. Parnasa, health. Nachas, fertility, whatever the need is, you're both davening for the same thing. But based on the simple understanding, many organizations and online platforms and apps and campaigns have you pair up or connect with someone else. I think Yoel Gold did a video about this. You daven for someone else who has the same thing that you need, you'll be answered first. But 
Here's the question. First of all, I never understood that because if the only reason you're davening for the other person is so that you're answered, then you're really still davening for yourself, which undermines the entire idea. So I never really understood it at all. But moreover, it's compounded by the following. Right now, you should be jumping out of your chairs. Those watching online should be jumping out of your bed, your chair, I don't know where you are, what you're doing, subway car, whatever you're doing. What should be jumping out and asking? You need the same thing? Did Avram and Avimelech need the same thing? They had totally different needs. What was Avram needing? What was he lacking? Sarah, in particular. A child. Conception. What did Avimelech need? He needed healing. What do you mean? How do you derive that? How do you draw that from here when this is not, in fact, an example of So the Mabit, in his Beis Elohim, explains that when Davins for, them, when Davins for themselves, it's unclear whether they're davening because they believe in the power of prayer, <coughs> they sincerely want to use it to connect to Hashem, or maybe tefillah is just another thing on your checklist. Got to go to the doctor, got to go to the pharmacy, got to eat kale. Nah, not worth it. <laughs> Whatever it is, it's not worth it. I tell you this study that came out, I saw an article a few months ago. By the way, countless people sent it to me because they know my adopted allergy to kale, that babies in the womb, when the mother ate kale, they did sonograms, made like a horrible face <laughs> when the mother ate kale. It's a real study, look it up, you could see it. Countless people sent it to me. I'm still just a baby making a terrible face from kale. So how do you know, how do you know if when you daven, maybe it's just a checklist thing. Maybe the davening is like going to the doctor, going to the pharmacy, going to the gym, taking care of your health. Oh yeah, I've got a daven because I do every school under the sun. I do everything because I want... Maybe you're not really davening because you believe in Hashem, that He's hearing, that He's answering the efficacy of prayer. Maybe the only reason you're davening is a gimmick, a checklist. Because why not dot all the I's and cross all the T's? So how do you know, says the Mabit, when you daven for a third party? When you're davening for someone else and their needs, you're not doing it as a checklist item. That's evidence you believe in the efficacy, the power of prayer, and the experience of talking to the Creator. But again, beautiful, nice idea. You're davening not only for yourself, as your own checklist, right? I'm eating these school of things, and I'm getting the brachas from all the rebbes, and I'm going to all the kvarim, and I guess I should also daven to Hashem, check. How do you know you believe in it? Because when you daven for someone else, that's not your checklist. Maybe that's evidence you really believe. But it still doesn't answer the question. Avram and Avimelech had different needs. How could Chazal deduce? How can they extrapolate from here that Tzarech Lo'oso Davar? Same need. Listen to this insight. Rav Zelig Ruvain Bengis, who is the head of the Eid Haredis of Yerushalayim, he offers a brilliant and novel interpretation. Listen to how he understands Tzarech Lo'oso Davar. Unbelievable. It does not mean you daven for someone else who has the same need or suffers from the same problem. Rather, it's that the problem the other person has actually benefits you. If they would continue to have that problem, it would be to your advantage. And nevertheless, you daven for them. Where do you see that? So for example, you have a competitor in business. You have someone competing and maybe you feel that they're, they're taking some of your clients, your customers, your business, and something happens to their business. God forbid they get sick, or some fire in their factory, a problem in their business, and you daven for them nonetheless, 
You daven for their success, you daven for their healing, you daven for their safety and security, even though it would be an advantage to you if they suffered the problem, then you're ne'enet chila. Then you're ne'enet chila. When you daven for them first, despite the fact that their challenge is in your best interest, you have proven your merit and you're deserving a great reward. And that's exactly what you see from here. The scoffers were claiming that Sarah's pregnancy was from whom? Avimelech. What would compel Avram to daven for Avimelech? If Avimelech was sick and rendered impotent and incapable of fathering a child, who would it serve? Avram. If the reality empirically proved that Avimelech couldn't father a child, Avram would say, well, that takes care of that. Take that, cynics and scoffers. There goes your conspiracy theory. If he were weakened and non-functional, nobody would dream of suggesting that Avimelech was the father. So you know what Oso Dover means, says Rav Bengis? Oso Dover means, doesn't mean you're davening for the same thing. It means Hutzarech Oso Dover. The thing that you're suffering from, I gain by. I could use. It's to my advantage. And nonetheless, I daven for you. Nonetheless, helping someone at your own expense, davening for someone, even when the very thing you're davening for will harm you, reflects on your generous heart, on your magnanimous spirit, on just who you are, how kind you are. Shows that you don't put yourself first, even though you would have an advantage and you would benefit. It shows how carefully calibrated your moral compass is and therefore who What an incredibly Powerful, powerful image. The Shabbos of Shechter is coming. Mari Varabi, we're very excited to host Rav Shechter. I'll tell you an amazing story of Rav Shechter. Rav Shechter once received a call. Somebody who helped raise money for a yeshiva. The timing couldn't have been any better. Wow. Rav Shechter got a phone call from someone who helped raise money for a yeshiva that he was a supporter of. And they said, you know, such and such a person might donate to this yeshiva. Rav Shechter, you're close. He's a Talmud of yours. Do you mind calling and asking him to help this yeshiva? Rav Shechter said, sure, I'm happy to. Then it occurred to him that Rav Shechter gives a shear in that neighborhood once a week. He said, you know, I come to that neighborhood once a week to give a shear. Maybe I could stop by the yeshiva. And when I see it for myself, when I make the phone call, it'll be that much more compelling because I'll see myself. I'll know what I'm talking about. I'm not speaking about something in the abstract. So... I'll stop by the yeshiva. So the man said, oh, oh, okay, maybe. Let me, let me call you back. And he called Rav Shechter back and he said, listen, the yeshiva is a little bit of a different ashkafa. Yeshiva is a little bit of a different orientation than you and then where you are a Rosh Yeshiva. Rosh Yeshiva is a little concerned for you to stop by. What would that say? What would people say? If you don't mind, could you just make the phone call to the Talmud, help us raise the money? Maybe it's better to not stop by. Maybe better to not stop by. So, what would you have said? Are you crazy? Are you out of your mind? So insulting, so offensive, so judgmental. You're on your own. I'm going to do a favor. I'm going to raise money. I'm going to help a yeshiva that doesn't respect me. Forget about it. What makes Rav Shechter great? He said, no problem. Whatever's better for you, whatever's better for the yeshiva, I'm happy to make the phone call. So when Rebetzin Schechter found out, I don't know if I should be telling this story, but when Rebetzin Schechter found out, she said, absolutely not. No way. Your coveter of Schechter is incredibly humble, and sometimes a spouse's job is to protect the cover, the honor of the other. She said, absolutely not, no way. So one of the Schechter children asked Rav Asher Weiss, 
No. Who's right? Who's correct? The story. So Ravasha said, your mother is right, your father is righteous. Your mother's right, your father's righteous. And again, I don't know if I should be repeating that story. If you see the Shechters, the Shabbos, don't mention that I said the story. I, I think it's greatness. And they're both, they're both right, and they're both righteous. But your mother's right, your father's righteous. And that's Hutzarach Lo'oso Davar. Sometimes something's not in your best interest. Do you do it anyway? Do you daven anyway? Do you help anyway? Do you step in anyway? It's a new interpretation. It's an incredibly novel interpretation in Hutzarach Lo'oso Davar. To daven for someone else, where what you're davening for helps you too, big deal. To daven for someone else, where if your tefillah is heard and it helps the other, it hurts you, that, that reflects a whole other level of your character, and that's what it means, hutzarach There are other interpretations, hutzarach which means not that you need it because you need it. Hutzarach means that until the other person's problem is solved, hutzarach You're in pain. You can't sleep. You're not comfortable. How could it be there's someone among us, a family, a friend, a community member, a neighbor who's sick or who wants a child or is waiting for a shidduch? Who tzarech lo so davar? I need that thing for them to be answered because it's not that I'm davening for the other. It's that, there's a beautiful chassam sofer who understands the Rambam this way, not for now. But chassam sofer understands the comment of the Rambam this way that every time we daven for another, Hashem only hears when we're not only davening for the other. If our davening is, Hashem, I'm good, I've got everything, I'm good to go, Nebuch, the poor Nebuch over there, I'm davening for the Nebuch. I want to be honored at the Shul dinner, I want to get the Eshaz Chayal award, I want to get Mafti Yona. So even though I'm all good, I got it going on, everything's perfect in my life, I'm davening for that Nebuch over there. Hashem doesn't listen to such a tefillah. When does Hashem listen to a tefillah? When my tefillah is, Hu tzarech lo'oso davar. It's not that I'm good, I'm well, I've got it all going on, and you are the Nebuch, I'm davening for you. It's that if Nebuch, you're missing out on something, I'm missing out on something. If you're lacking, I'm in pain. If you're suffering, I can't continue. Hu tzarech lo'oso davar. I need it also as well. The Chidah, my new favorite, Sefer Otsu Pelos HaTorah, we'll quote from it several times today. Hopefully we'll get to it. Says the following: Eila told his Yitzchak ben Avram, Avram holid his Yitzchak. He quotes the Chida. This incredible sefer digs up the most obscure comments. Fantastic, fantastic stuff. And he says the following: The Chida in his sefer, I don't even know how to pronounce it. Midbar Kadmos, Kidmos, quotes from a Kuntros Yashan Aklaf. Shekasu Talmidei Rabbeinu Yehuda Hachasid b'shem Rabbam. They found a parchment that quotes a tradition from Yehuda Hachasid that says the following quote. Did you ever wonder, were they contemporaries? Did they love contemporaneously? Did Avram, Yitzchak, and Yaakov ever overlap? Was there ever three generations of Thanksgiving dinner? Did they ever have together Avram, Yitzchak, and Yaakov? Says this tradition from Rabbi Yudah yes. For 15 years, for 15 hours a day, Father, son, and grandson, Avram, Yitzchak, and Yaakov, learned Torah. 15 years, 15 hours a day, the three of them learned Torah. Now, it's very hard to understand, because Yitzchak Avinu was born, how old was Avram? A hundred. And Yaakov was born when Yitzchak was 60. So when Yaakov was born, Avram would have had to have been a hundred and... 
60. But all of his years were, how old was Avram when he died? 175. So Yaakov would have had to start to learn from birth, from infancy, from being a newborn. And so the Balaturim writes, The Balaturim quotes this tradition that there is an overlap of 15 years, but he does not say they studied, they learned together, because Yaakov would have had to have been a newborn. But says the Otsir Pelosa Torah, maybe you can understand Rabbi Yudah Chassid, yeah, maybe Yaakov was in the car seat. He was in the crib. He was in the bassinet. And we find this in a medras with Moshe Rabbeinu. That the day Moshe Rabbeinu was born, he already walked on two feet. And he already spoke to his parents. And when he was three months, he already had a prophecy. So we do see a tradition with Moshe Rabbeinu that the most advanced that the greatest, they're already born, we need to develop, we need to evolve, we need to grow. I think it's Rabbeinu Bachai, I forgot where I once saw it, who wonders why the difference between animals and man. If you've ever seen a calf be born, why would you have ever seen a calf be born? Because the Berman family from Hollywood, Gore Bermanir family has a farm in Okeechobee. When you have little kids, it's a great activity to do on a Sunday or to go to their farm and see the cows being milked and seeing Dr. Berman deliver calves from cows. Fascinating. Most fascinating part to me is when he successfully delivers a calf, you know what happens? The calf comes out and starts to walk, stands up, stumbles a little bit. It's like a drunk calf at first, stumbles a little bit, and then it starts to walk. You say, wait one second. How come with us, it takes months, could take years. How come it takes a long time? And the calf pops out, punk to start walking. So the answer, I think it's Rabbeinu Bachaya says, because the animals, what you see is what you get. Behema ba ma, what you see is what you get. Adam in ha'adama. We're meant to grow and make progress and evolve and advance. Our whole life is a journey of growth. The animal starts walking when it came out because what you see is what you get. This is it. Animal's not going to go for an education or great graduate degrees or learn lessons of life or study and read books. The animal, what you see is what you get from birth. Ba ma, behema. Adam and Adama, we grow, we advance, we make progress. So that's true for the ordinary individual. But Moshe Rabbeinu, the Medrash says, and here maybe a Yaakov Avinu, they're already born more advanced, and therefore maybe Yaakov was already learning from the womb. A fascinating example, Otsar Plaosa Torah. Torah tells us, Perachafei Pasuk, Chaf Aleph. What happens? She, like all of our Imos, Rivka, rather, is barren. She's struggling with infertility, one of the most painful things known to man. We daven for all those who are waiting and longing for a child. They should be blessed with many, many healthy, wonderful children who give them tremendous nachas. So Yitzchak daven for his wife. Yitzchak davens for his wife because she's barren. Hashem heard this powerful, deep prayer and he responded. And in fact, she conceived. And we know the whole story of Ayesro Tzu. She feels this agitation. She goes to get a consultation. There's two children. We asked last year and answered last year um, why she's satisfied by this conversation that she has. That it's two nations. That shouldn't make her feel any better that one of them is kicking to get out when she passes the base of Zara. How did that help? That was last year. So Rashi says, lo. So Yitzchak is davening. Lo Hashem. Hashem answers Yitzchak. Why? Why did Hashem answer Yitzchak? 
Because you can't begin to compare the tefillah of a tzaddik ben tzaddik with the tefillah of a tzaddik ben Russia. Now, if you would have asked me, I would have said, you're right. You can't begin to compare. Who's more impressive? The one with no background? Bab Shreb, hated when people said no background. We all have a background. We're children of Avraham, Yitzhak, and Yaakov. He said, people don't have an education. Every Jew has a background. So who's more impressive? The person who has no role models, no inspiration, no education, grows up in a wicked home, and yet davens in such a righteous way? Or the person, the Yitzchak, who grew up watching Avram? How does that make sense, Rashi's comment? Yitzchak was answered. Why? You can't begin to compare the tefillah of a tzaddik ben tzaddik and the tefillah of a tzaddik ben Russia. Says the Megid Yosef, Rav Yosef Sorotskin, who will be here in a few weeks for Shabbos. So the tzaddik ben Russia is much more impressive. It's new, it's fresh. So it's, it's independently inspired. So why is the feel of the tzaddik ben tzaddik better? You know what the inspiration of a tzaddik ben tzaddik is? The tzaddik ben Russia says, I was raised by and I live among Rishaim. I reject that way of life. I reject that corruption. I reject that immorality. I reject that atheism. And I want to live a more meritorious, virtuous life. Beautiful, super impressive, but also very self-rewarding. But the tzaddik ben tzaddik grows up and says, my father's a tzaddik. There's enormous pressure on me to be a tzaddik. How will I ever live up to being a tzaddik like my father? So you know what? I'm going to walk away. I'm going to give it up. I'm not even going to try since it's unlikely I could succeed. Why bother? To be a tzaddik ben tzaddik? And you see this empirically. We don't have that many dynasties of Talmidei Chachamim. Because when a person is raised in the context of greatness, it's beautiful and it's wonderful and we think that we're jealous or envious, but it comes with its own set of problems. It's not so easy. It's not so easy at all. And Yitzhak nevertheless perseveres, endures. He's inspired and he's driven that he too can emerge to be a tzaddik in his own way, in his own right. That it never gets old or stale or rote. That even though he's got the greatest role model and even though from a very young age he's already taught, he nevertheless is incredibly, incredibly committed. His tefillah is described as he genuinely feels he's standing in front of God. And this is now the interpretations. What does it mean, lenochach ishto? We're not going to spend time on this now. I don't remember if we did previously. What does it mean, lenochach? What is the word lenochach? Translate the word for me. Yitzchak daven to Hashem lenochach. Rashi says they were in opposite corners. Opposite corners. Maybe this is the makar for the separation of genders in tefillah, for mechitza. Why do we have a mechitza? Why do we separate? Certainly we're avoiding socializing and inappropriate interaction, licentiousness, certainly the mechitz is playing that role, but it's playing an additional role. You know what happened, What would happen for a lot of men if they were davening next to their wife? 
she'd be with her sitter. For some reason, women hold it really close up to their chin, especially when they get back from seminary. So she'd be davening, pouring out her heart, you know, throwing her all into it, furrowing her brow. She'd be entirely sincere. And he'd be like, yeah, you know what, God? I'm going to look at my texts. I'm with her. You see how sincere, you see how intense, you see how righteous she is? Yeah, I, I, I go with her. I go with her, I'm good to go. She's having me in mind. She has me in mind, I'll be answering email. So the halacha comes and says, no, 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 no. Everybody, you're on your own. You daven, and you daven, and you cannot have someone in mind, and you cannot piggyback, and you can't say ditto, and you can't go with someone else. Everybody, you're on your own. Pour your heart to Hashem. Develop your relationship with Hashem. Connect with Hashem in your own way. Separate corners. Maybe this is the muck, or maybe this is the source for that. Lenochach, they were in separate corners. They were davening in their own. Lenochach, others say, why was Yitzchak davening for, not davening for Hashem? He only needed to daven for her. Why didn't he need to daven for himself? He had a pretty good promise going. What promise did he have? Hashem. She lived saying... I have no idea if I'll ever conceive. I don't know if I'll ever merit to have a child. I don't know my continuity. Yitzhak said, yeah, I'm good to go. Because he promised my father and through my father, he promised me that I'm going to have children and offspring, the whole stars and sands. You remember all those blessings? Yeah, I'm the chosen one. That goes through me. So I'm good to go. I don't know if it'll be through you, just like my father took on another wife. Maybe it'll be through someone else. I'm good to go. So you know who I'm davening for? You. Lenochach. He davened for Rivka because he was good to go. That doesn't sit well with me. I'm sure it doesn't sit well with you. Says the Megid Yosef. Well, you know what it means? Lenochach. Lenochach ishto. It means that Yitzchak, his tefillah, Lenochach ishto, it paralleled the intensity and the sincerity of his wife. She's a tzaddik ben Russia. She, on the one hand, for her, this is new and fresh and exciting and energizing and romantic. This whole spirituality of being a balas tshuva. She's on fire. She's on fire. You know, the Gemara says, Kashen geren Yisrael kisapachas. Converts are as unpleasant to the Jewish people like a boil, like a bad rash, like a fungus, like a case of corona. What did converts do wrong that we label them so terribly. Rashi, Tosos, different opinions weigh in. But the explanation I find so beautiful, you know what it means? It means the convert walks in all excited. I'm so excited. Hanukkah's coming up. Hey, I can't wait to clean for Pesach. Shachras is over. When can we start Mincha? Teach me more. Which jelly bean do I take from which color and leave behind and how and where and when? Borer, oh, so beautiful. Borer is amazing. And the from from birth is like, yeah, whatever. Just, <laughs> just eat the jelly beans. If you tell me Lama Tess Malachas, I break out in hives from my, the test I took in eighth grade. Just leave me alone. Yeah, you and your davening, you and your clean, Pesach cleaning. So what does it mean that the converts are as painful to the Jewish people like a boil? It means they are a mirror. They are a conscience because they are the standard of the way we should <coughs> and could be living with the energy and enthusiasm. So, <coughs> excuse me, compared to them, we're asleep at the wheel. The Gerim, Kashan Gerim the Yisrael, 
Hashem looks down and He says to the from from birth, those FFBs who are burnt out and disaffected and disinterested, and He says, could you be a little bit more excited like the convert? And I think it's not just the convert. Hashem looks down at the Balei Tshuva and He says, yeah, while you're barely holding on and you're still considering walking away, look at all these people who've just run towards. Look at the people who've embraced. Look at the people who've radically changed their life and lifestyle because they want a piece of what you're thinking of walking away from. The Balei Tshuva are our conscience. They're our standard. They are mechaev us. They obligate us. So Rivka is a Balei Tshuva. She's davening. She's got her sitter up here. She's swaying. She's making those faces. She's intensely concentrating. And in the other corner is the Tzadik Ben Tzadik. He's like, yeah, I, I've been saying this my whole life. I say it forever. I grew up going to the slowest minion because my father was the Rosh Hashiva. Yeah, I, I, yeah. It's hard to be inspired to daven. That's what the Pasuk means. That's what the Pasuk means. Vayeta Yitzhak Lashem lenochach ishto. The tefillah of the Tzadik Ben Tzadik was just as intense as the Tzadik Ben Rasha. His tefillah lenochach, it was opposite her that he was inspired by her. He paralleled her. He was able to be as intense as she, won, she was, and that's what it means. Okay, let's keep going. We're going to do something we don't normally do. We're going to go out of order in the Parsha. You know, every week I say we only got like halfway through, a third through. So several people email me, well, why don't you just start from the back and work your way forward? <laughs> so we're going to go a little bit out of order today. So try to hold cup in the storyline because we're going a little bit out of order. Perach of Zion, Perach of Zion, You find that, we know Rivka, spoiler alert, Rivka gives birth to twins, Yaakov and Esav. They're very, very different. They emerge to be very, very different. And what happens when it's time for the brachas? Rivka concocts an entire scheme with her son. You know, the one who could never tell a lie. Titan Emes Yaakov. And he tells one of the greatest lies of history. When he disguises himself as brother Esav and steals the bracha from his brother Esav. When Yitzchak became old and he got cataracts, back of the generation, he struggled to see. And he called Esav his son, Ha Gadol. He called his son and Esav answered, Hineni. Pasuk Tezvav. Turn the page, page 136. Pasuk Tezvav. Rivka takes the clothing of her son Esav. Which son? Ha Gadol. And then a third time you see Pasuk Mem Dalad. Pasuk Mem Dalad yet again. We find Esav being called Gadol. Why does the text continuously refer to Esav? Sorry, Pasuk Membez. Ve'yugad l'rivka is different Esav b'naha gadol. V'atishlach v'atikral Yaakov b'naha katan. V'atomer elav in Esav achicha misnachim l'chal l'hargecha. Why does the text at least three times refer to Esav as the gadol and Yaakov as the katan? Why? We know by now. Don't we know by now? Esav was born first. We obviously have to know by now because, in fact, that's how we got to this whole story. Esav's the older brother. Yaakov made the trade. He bought the birthright. Esav, he disgraced it when he, 
when, when he simply dismissed it. So we know Esav's older. So why does the text have to tell us not once and not twice, at least three times, Esav's Gadol and Yaakov is Katan. So there are many interpretations to this, and I want to share some of them with you. The Ramban says, you know why the Torah is telling us this? This is an amazing Ramban. Parents are drawn to love and affection. Parents love all their children, they love all their children equally. That's what we're all told, and that's what we tell our children. And it's true. We love all of our children equally. It's true, we love all of our children equally. But your firstborn child made you a parent. They gifted you and they, you gave them life. They gave you parenthood. There's a certain relationship with the firstborn. This is true in the Torah too. Jewish people, God has many children. All of humanity are his children. We are B'ni B'chari Yisrael. We are his firstborn. And the B'chor, the role of the B'chor, the role of the firstborn, is significantly elevated throughout the Torah and manifest in Halacha. Firstborn has a certain status. And we have a certain affection, affinity towards that firstborn. And yet, here Rivka, Rivka, the mother of that firstborn, bless you, has to be willing to say, he's not the chosen one. He may have granted and gifted me parenthood. He might be my firstborn, but I have to set aside whatever connection I have, whatever affinity or affection I have for him, because he's not the one. Yaakov is. So Gadol and Katan are emphasized again and again to indicate that Rivka is willing to do the difficult decision and to choose the correct child, even though he's the younger one over the older one. Very interesting insight of the Ramban. The Nitziv and the Orachayim explain differently. The Nitziv of Mtali Tzu Yehuda Berlin, the Orachayim HaKadosh, Rabchaim Ben Atar says, this has to do with ace of stature and his strength. Gadol and Katan is not a description of birth order, nor is it a description of spiritual status or identity. It's simply a description of height. Esav's bigger, and Yaakov has to wear Esav's clothing. Esav's stronger, Yaakov's weaker, so Yaakov has to run and flee for his life. And that's why in this storyline, in the narrative, the Torah tells us Yaakov is Katan, Esav is Gadol, because they were different heights, they were different sizes. In fact, the Otsar Plos Torah has a discussion about this, about their different height. Okay, we won't get into it, but he has a discussion about their different height, about their different uh, stature, physically, physically. Um, <coughs> and the third approach is Rav Schwab. Shimon Schwab, the Rav of German Jewry in the Washington Heights, Shimon Schwab has a different interpretation, a final notion. He says, Gadol is not an expression of physical height or stature or power or strength, nor is it a question of birth order. Esav was Gadol in a certain way. In what way and with what mitzvah was Esav greater than Yaakov? Kibar Avaim. Esav excelled at one mitzvah. He didn't just excel in that mitzvah. You know what he was? He was a Gadol in that mitzvah. He was a Gadol. Kibar Avaim. Rashi quotes that he tried to trick his father into asking Shilas that weren't even true, but he, he ran to be able to take care to be able to provide, to be able to affectionately display the love for his parents. In fact, Esav had special clothing. 
He would change out of his gym clothing. He would change out of his smelly hunting garb. He put on special royal clothing to care for his parents. Ad kedekach. He would honor his parents by wearing more honorable clothing. He was a gadol in kibbutz av ve'em. He was a gadol in the realm of honoring his parents. And relative to Esav, Yaakov was a katan. Not that Yaakov didn't fulfill this mitzvah nobly, but compared to Esav who excelled, he was a katan. Rivka understands and she tells Yaakov against his better judgment to go in an extraordinary act of kibbutz aim. Honor me and become a gadol in kibbutz aim by doing something against your nature. Your nature is truth. You cannot tell a lie. Your loyalty and fidelity to truth, I want you to go against your nature as a display of honoring me, kibbutz aim. And by putting Yaakov in Esav's clothing, the clothing that he would wear while serving his father, she said, you are emulating your brother Hagadol. He's a gadol in kibbutz av. You should wear his kibbutz av clothing to achieve being a gadol in kibbutz aim by honoring me to do this against your father. It's a wild pshat, no? So gadol and katan is not height, is not birth order. It is rele- specifically related to a particular mitzvah, namely kibbutz av aim, and relative to Yaakov, Esav's a gadol, and Rivka put him on the special clothing of kibbutz clothing to be a gadol himself in this way, in this, in this area. Okay. Yoshev Oalim. We're going to go back to the beginning of the parsha. Yaakov and Esav are born. They emerge. They grow up. At Bar Mitzvah, you begin to see the differences in the maturity of people. Perach Hafei Pasach Go back and give me a whiplash. Page 126. Fundamental difference in the way that their names or their character is communicated. Esav is, what is Esav? Yodea, Tzayed. Yaakov is Yoshev. What's the difference in tenses grammatically between Yodea and Yoshev? Rashi says, what does it mean? He's Yoshev O'alim. Base midrasho shall shame or base midrasho shall aver. They each had their own yeshiva, shame and aver. It's you know, the old Jewish joke, the show you'd go to the one, you'd never go to the yeshiva. You're registered in the yeshiva, you'd never go to shame and aver. They couldn't even combine and they couldn't, uh, they couldn't, uh, Collaborate. They had two separate competing yeshivas. Yeshiva of Shem and Yeshiva of Aver. By the way, which yeshiva did Yaakov go to? Both. You know why? Yaakov diversified in his learning. My whole worldview of the Shar HaKolel, 70 faces of Torah. Don't just lock yourself into one path. Have a spiritual passport and travel. Learn from all. Explore Hasidus. Explore different types of Hasidus, explore the Sephardi tradition, the Ashkenazi tradition, different yeshivas, different Russian yeshiva, different hashkafas, take and draw the best from all of them. Who do we learn that from? Yaakov. He's Yoshev, not Yoshev Ohel. Yaakov doesn't plant himself and sit only in one base medrash. He's Yoshev Ohalim. He explores multiple, multiple bate medrash. Rashi specifically says, shame and Ever. Comes along Rav Chaim Friedlander, the Mashkiach Aponovich, and he says, unlike Esav, who is described as Yodeat Sayid, Yaakov is described in the Hove, 
in the present tense. <clears throat> Yoshev. Why is Yoshev? Yoshev. Because he is always learning. Wherever and whatever he does, he's Yoshev in the present tense. He's always, life is a journey of learning. He's sitting and learning wherever he is. Wherever he is, whatever he's doing. What do we call, what do we call somebody who is um, superior in their knowledge? In Judaism, what do we call them? Talmud Chacham. We don't call them a Chacham. Sorry, I don't call them a Chacham. We call them a Talmud Chacham. Shecht is coming this weekend. Oh, what an extraordinary Talmud Chacham. You know what makes someone a Chacham? That they remain a Talmud. What makes you a Chacham is remaining a Talmud. Is remaining a Talmud. Is remaining a student, Yoshev. That it's a perpetual state of sitting and learning, whether literally or figuratively, you're never done, you are never finished. V'yazed, now we move over to the story of the sale of the birthright. What happens? Yaakov is just amazing. On his resume, he sits and he learns, and he cooks. <laughs> learner, I don't know if he was an earner, but he was a learner chef. Yoshev Oalim, and he cooks. Unbelievable. That's why he had resumes down to the floor. Yaakov's got a simmering stew. He's making a chowant. And Esav comes in and he says, boy, I'm starving. And we know the whole exchange, the conversation, and the sale that takes, the sale that takes place. Gemara Baba Basra tells us that Tezvav, that day that Esav returns from the field, Esav violated five Averos on that day. What were the five Averos? They begin with, Bo al na'ara me'urasa. Esav slept with a engaged woman. There was a woman who was engaged to someone else, and Esav didn't care. He didn't respect boundaries and territory. Esav slept with an na'ara me'urasa. Tosus and Tosus Arid sound like avar al avera Literally. He raped or seduced, or simply even with her consent, but he didn't respect boundaries. Esav slept with a married woman. But the Prima Gadim in Hilchos Pesach, this comes from Otzer Plosa Torah. This is the kind of stuff he digs up. It's Geschmack. Listen to what he says. The Prima Gadim. Everyone knows the Prima Gadim, the great halachic source. The Prima Gadim. The Prima Gadim, Rabbi Yosef Tu'umim, in his Hilchos Pesach, Simon Tov Ayin Vav, he quotes from a sefer Yad Yosef, Parshas told us, our Parsha, who says this Gemara may be al Pidrash. Gemara says that that day Esav came in from the field starving. He, why was he so tired? Because being a Russia is exhausting. I hope none of us know from experience, but being a Russia <coughs> is exhausting. So violating all these boundaries is exhausting. So again, Tosas Tosas would say, literally, he slept with an engaged woman, but the Premier Gadam says, no, that's not what it means. You know what it means, Ba'anara Mi'urasa? It means the following. He ate matzah that Yaakov had made. And what did Yaakov intend Yitzchak was going to be eating it? What day was this on the Jewish calendar? When did Avram die? Erev Pesach. Yaakov made this lentil stew, kasher Pesach, and he made matzah that Yitzchak was going to fulfill the mitzvah of matzah with on Seder night. Avram died on Erev Pesach. Esav comes from the field on Erev Pesach, and he says, Haliteini na, I'm starving. Give me something. So Yaakov gave the matzah to Esav. Why did Yaakov sell the matzah to Esav? With the assumption that when would his big brother eat it? Pesach night, like a good yid. 
But Esau was so starving and he had no discipline, no self-control. When did he eat it? Right then and there on Erev Pesach. The Yerushalmi in Psachim says, Ha'ochal matzah be'erev Pesach, kebo' al arusoso be'beis chamav. To eat matzah, we know some of the tradition not to eat matzah from Puraman, from a month before. Some of the tradition not to eat matzah from Rosh Chodesh. But strictly speaking, it's prohibited to eat matzah on Erev Pesach. <coughs> person should have their first taste of matzah, have an appetite for matzah. And the Yerushalmi says, if you eat matzah on Erev Pesach, it's like sleeping with your betrothed in your in-law's house. You couldn't wait. She's going to become permissible to you. There's an appropriate time and place, and you can't wait. Chazal had some, uh, you know, colorful imagery, metaphors. It's not mine. I'm reading to you verbatim. Yerushalmi Psachim Perik Yud, Halacha Aleph. Haocha matzah of Pesach. I'm just translating the words. If you eat matzah of Pesach, it's like you slept with your bride in the home of your in-laws, in her parents' home. And that says the Prima Godim, that's what the Gemara means when it says, Asa violated five things and one of them was because he ate the matzah on Erev Pesach that Yaakov had baked instead of waiting to eat it on Pesach night. And that's the connection of eating matzah of Pesach. <coughs> Both are only permissible after you recite Sheva brachas. Before you eat the matzah, you make three brachas. Kiddush, Yayin, Kiddush and Zman. Bari Pre Gafan, Kaddish Yisrov Azmanam Shechianu. You make a Bari Pre Adaman Karpas. Bari Pre Gafan on the second cup. Hamotzi, Birchas Achilas Matzah, Sheva brachas. There are seven brachas you say before you get to the matzah. This is for your Haggadah, Rabbi Brand. Chassan and Kala also say Sheva brachas under the chuppah before they could be intimate. So before you could eat the matzah, there are seven blessings said. Before one is intimate, there are Sheva brachas said under the chuppah. So when you eat matzah on Erev Pesach, it's like your Ba'al Arusaso Bebeis Chamav. Says the Prima Gadim. Now you understand why we have eggs at the Seder table. Don't break out in hives. I'm sharing with you a Pesach, Tvar Torah. It's not even Hanukkah. Why? We eat Beitz and Belo Pesach, like the Yerushalmi says. It's quoted by the Kolbo, the Beis Yosef. That what? Eggs is Meichal Avelim. The, the first meal the Avel eats when they come home from the cemetery, the Sudas of Ra, is an egg and bread. That's in fact what Yaakov was, baked, was cooking for his father. Yitzchak was sitting shiva for the death of Avram on Erev Pesach. He made him lentils round like eggs. So why do we eat eggs at the Seder? Zecher shemes Avram avinu be'erev Pesach. The whole reason we eat an egg at the Seder is because that day was the yurt site of Avram avinu. Avram died on Erev Pesach. That's why Yaakov was making Yitzchak a round food, which to us today is not a lentil but an egg. Esav should have waited to eat the matzah till Seder night, but he preempted, he ate it already on Erev Pesach, which was like Kabol Arisasa Bebeis Chamav. So that's why, that's why. Interesting, huh? Good stuff. Okay. I think it's good stuff. You look like you're a lot less impressed. Vaishmur Bismosi, Perachavav Pasuk. Hey. Excuse me. Vairav Barat Mavada Ravarishon. Now there's a famine that forces Yitzchak. Yitzchak can't leave the land of Israel. Why? He's a carbon ola. 
he was on the Mizbeach. Unlike his father, even though Maisav was similar to him, unlike his father who fled, whenever there was a famine, Yitzchak couldn't leave, but within Israel he goes to the land of the Plishtim, and he encounters Avimelech, and the Pasuk says, Perech Avav, Pasuk Hei, Ekev Asher Shama Avram Bekoli, Vayishmor Mishmarti, Mitzvosai, Chukosai, Besorosai. Because Avram obeyed my voice and observed my safeguards, my commandments, my decrees, and my Torah. Rav Yaakov Kamenetsky says, what does this mean? The Ramban here, the Ramban of these words quotes, I don't understand. Yaakov kept everything. How did he keep everything? What did he explicitly violate? Those who learned the daf last year, two years ago, Yevamos, are you allowed to be married to two, to two sisters? No. Yaakov's married to two sisters. How could it tell us that Yaakov observed everything? He's going to marry two sisters, Rachel and Leah. How is it allowed? Levad Why? Says the Ramban, It was allowed because it was Chutzlaaretz. So Rav Yaakov Kamenetsky, Emes Liankiv, he says the following. Why was Yaakov allowed to? Why did he marry Rachel after he married Leah? Because he had made a promise he was going to marry Rachel. And Yaakov Avinu doesn't violate his promise. His word is his bond. If he said he's going to marry her, he's going to marry her. Even though marrying her meant what did he have to abandon? a chumrah that he had of observing the whole Torah even though it had not yet been commanded. So, says Rav Yaakov Kamenetsky, you see something powerful here. Chumras are lovely. Stringencies that we adopt for ourselves, they're wonderful. But not at the expense of much more fundamental, core and central commitments. Yaakov made a promise. He's not entitled to abandon the promise in order to fulfill a chumrah. So he sets aside the chumrah because he had made a promise that even though he had already married Leah, and marrying Rachel would go against the Torah that he had voluntarily adopted, nevertheless, keeping his promise is more, is more important, is more important. Okay. Um, yeah, the Otsum Plosa Torah, back to my favorite new saver, says the following. It's still worth buying it. I, I'm quoting 10% on each parsha of what he has. 5%. It's fantastic. Fun, it's great stuff. Here's a question he explores. Again, the kind of stuff he explores. The Avos kept all of Torah. Did they wear tefillin? Did Yaakov put on tefillin every day? Avram, Yitzchak, and Yaakov, did they put on tefillin? Which one, Rashi or Rabbeinu Tam? Why is it a question, did they put on tefillin? What's inside the tefillin? Four parshios. What are the parshios? Included among the parshios are leaving Mitzrayim, hadn't yet happened. Did they wear tefillin? What was inside their tefillin? Gemar Yimah Chavches. We learn from this pasuk, Ekev Asher Pasuk, Hey, Ekev Asher Shama Avram Bekoli, Veishmor Mishmarti Mitzosai Chukosai Mitzosai, that Avram voluntarily observed all the mitzvahs in the Torah, even the Rabbanan. And Yaakov says the same thing. Yaakov is going to say, Im Lavan Garti Ve. Taryag Mitzvah Shamarti. He kept all 613, all Taryag. All Taryag. So if he kept all Taryag, did he wear tefillin? 
The parsha of Kadeshli has the story of Sipar Yitzhiyas Mitzrayim. <coughs> they hadn't yet been in Mitzrayim. They hadn't yet left Mitzrayim. How can you say they fulfill a mitzvah whose whole essence is to commemorate an exodus that hadn't yet happened? So did they wear tefillin if supposedly they kept the whole Torah? So the Sefer Moor Vashemesh says, Lo matzinu she'avus also bepoel maisa ha-mitzvahs ka'anachas tefillin ha-chadoma Every mitzvah has a panemius. There's the physical mitzvah, and there's the deeper meaning and spirituality of the mitzvah. When we say they observed and they kept all the mitzvahs, this is the more of a shemesh, it does not mean <clears throat> they literally kept all the mitzvahs. It means they were aware of and tuned in to the deeper meaning of the mitzvah, and that they kept... They were connected with the spirituality of the mitzvah, even if it doesn't mean that literally they observe the mitzvah. And maybe you can bring a raya to this from the fact that Avram Avinu gets schar. The Gemara Chulin says he gets a schar by the fact that he never took anything from the war, the four kings, the five kings, Sdom. It says, from a, from a shoelace, for a string to a shoelace, he didn't take anything. And Chazal say, that his children in the merit inherited two mitzvahs, namely, which mitzvahs? Chut is tchelas, and Ritzua is tfilin. In the merit of his not taking of the spoils, his children, zachu bonav, to tzitzis and tfilin. So what does that suggest, says the Otsuplosa Torah? That the others didn't wear tfilin, it's bonav. It would have meant that he merited tfilin, it would have said that he merited, it says bonav. Others disagree, quotes. Others, the Ritva, Rashi, Yismach, Moshe, quotes from all over. We're not going to take the time. Indication in this way, indication in that direction. Did they wear tefillin? Did they not wear tefillin? He concludes it. Sha'alti chakira zula gonor chayim kanievsky. I asked Reb Chaim, no, did they wear tefillin? Heishiv li b'ksav b'zeh aloshem. Reb Chaim, as he answered hundreds of thousands of postcards, normally with a terse answer, he answered every one. So he answered this question and said, they knew, if not the notion of the slavery in Mitzrayim physically, but they knew what it would mean spiritually. They understood the principle of freedom of emancipation, of exodus, and therefore, even though it hadn't yet happened, it's, uh, it is, it is uh, possible, says Reb Chaim, that they wore tefillin, so it's possible that they wore tefillin. Again, another example of, a, of an interesting thing they, they dug up. Later, Pasuk says, Perach of Ches, Pasuk Beis. Perach of Ches, Pasuk Beis. I'm going to skip again towards the end of the parsha. Trying, I'm trying, people. I'm trying. There, there are questions, I've shared these every year because they bother me every year. They're still unclear. It feels like Iker Chasam and Asefer. Did Rivka and Yitzchak ever have pillow talk about their children? Did Rivka ever share? Her concerns about Esav? By the way, if our matriarchs and patriarchs followed the precedent of what came before them, then how come Rivka didn't follow the model of Sarah? Sarah kicked Yishmael out of the house. Why don't Yitzchak and Rivka kick Esav out of the house? Why do they leave him around? Okay, it's her child. It wasn't Sarah's child, but Yishmael was Avram's child. So much so that Hashem has to say, whatever Sarah says, Shema Bikola, listen, she's right. If she was right to kick Yishmael out, why wouldn't it be right to also kick Esav out? But did Yitzchak and Rivka, the text leaves us wondering every year. 
the text is the same every year, so it leaves us wondering every year. Did Yitzchak and Rivka have pillow talk? Did Rivka say, you know, I went to parent-teacher conferences this week. First time in many, many, many moons. I generally don't go. But I went. I went. So did they come back from parent-teacher conferences and say, what are we going to do about Asaph? What's the story? It seems like they had no conversation at all. And moreover, Rivka comes up with this entire concoction and sets Yaakov up to trick his father Yitzchak. And it's not like the curtain comes down and then we never find out what happens. Did Yitzchak ever say to Yaakov, son, what's the deal with what you just did? It's not okay. Or it is okay because I understand you were serving a greater good, but it was a little uncomfortable. I feel like you, you tricked me. Did they ever talk about it? And it's not like we don't know if they spoke. They spoke. Vayikra Yitzchak Yaakov. Yitzchak calls Yaakov over after the episode. And, and Yitzchak, we know. Was Yitzchak just like roll with the punches? Was he easy going? When he realizes that he had given the bracha to Yaakov instead of Esav, was he like cool with that? Was it fine? He shakes, he almost passes out. He has a terrible, whoa. The text tells us how shaken Yitzchak is. If he's so shaken... Why, when he encounters Yaakov again, does he just talk to him about Shidduchim? Go to Padena Aram, go to the house of Besuel, the father of your mother, your grandfather, and get married to their Mibnos Lavan, Achi Imecha. Marry someone there from the daughters of Lavan, the brother of your mother. In other words, marry a cousin. How about, hey, can we talk about what happened? You almost gave me a heart attack. You gave me a stroke. Can we talk about what happened? Did they talk about it? Text doesn't tell us. I don't know. So the Pasuk says, go, all they do talk about is, he says, go run for your life. You're in trouble. Your brother's going to kill you. And by the way, go get married. And only marry, because Yitzchak had this experience from his father, only marry your cousin. Keep it in the family. So Otsu Plosa Torah will end with this. We'll end with this. The Medrash, Brishas Rabasi, that Lavan did not have daughters at all. And... Once Yitzchak said the words, V'kach l'cha isha mibnos lavan, tzadik gozer ha-kadosh baruchu immediately when Yitzchak, thousands of miles away, uttered the words, go marry from the daughters of lavan, from your cousin, punked, then lavan's wife got pregnant, and she gave birth to twins. And that's why Yaakov spent 14 years in the yeshiva of shame ve'ever. And this answer is a big question, because... How old was Yaakov when he got married? How old was Yitzchak? 40. Not young. By today's standards, by their standards. Yitzchak was 40. Yaakov is how old? How old? 84. Yaakov's 84. 84. Night, right? 84? He's, much, he's more than twice as old. What is he waiting for? 14 years, Yeshiva Shem Ve'ever, he stops over to learn. So Tzaplos HaTorah explains he had to wait for these girls to be at least 14 years old. We spoke last week, made a little controversy online. On Twitter, there was a whole debate about what we said. That Rifka was three, that's one medrash. The Gras says she was 14. You don't have to teach the medrash she was three. Generated a little debate about it. My daughter Tamar generated a little debate the day she wasn't listening at school because her teacher didn't make sense. So the Gras says Rifka was 14 when she got married. Here also, here also, he learned for 14 years 
he had to stay over in Yeshiva Sheva Eimer for these Lavan's new daughters to be, to grow up a little bit, to be eligible to get married. So maybe that's why he stopped over and that's why it took so long and he waited so long to get married. A lot more to say, but we'll leave it there. Have a fantastic day. Stay happy, stay healthy, and stay holy.